Book Six, Part One of the Republic, by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bamnufeld. And thus, Glaucon, after the argument has gone a weary way, the true and the false philosophers have at length appeared in view. I do not think, he said, that the way could have been shortened. I suppose not, I said, and yet I believe that we might have had a better view of both of them if the discussion could have been confined to this one subject, and if there were not many other questions awaiting us, which he who desires to see in what respect the life of the just differs from that of the unjust must consider. And what is the next question? he asked. Surely, I said, the one which follows next in order, inasmuch as philosophers only are able to grasp the eternal and the unchangeable, and those who wander in the region of the many and variable are not philosophers, I must ask you which of the two classes should be the rulers of our state. How can we rightly answer that question? Whichever of the two are best able to guard the laws and institutions of our state, let them be our guardians. Very good. Neither, I said, can there be any question that the guardian who is to keep anything should have eyes rather than no eyes. There can be no question of that. And are not those who are verily and indeed wanting in the knowledge of the true being of each thing, and who have in their souls no clear pattern, and are unable, as with a painter's eye, to look at the absolute truth, and to the original to repair, and having perfect vision of the other world to order the laws about beauty, goodness, justice, in this, if not already ordered, and to guard and preserve the order of them, are not such persons, I ask, simply blind? Truly, he replied, they are much in that condition. And shall they be our guardians when there are others who, besides being their equals in experience, and falling short of them in no particular virtue, also know the very truth of each thing? But there can be no reason, he said, for rejecting those who have this greatest of all great qualities. They must always have the first place unless they fail in some other respect. Suppose, then, I said, that we determine how far they can unite this and the other excellences, by all means. In the first place, as we began by observing, the nature of the philosopher has to be ascertained. We must come to an understanding about him, and when we have done so, then, if I am not mistaken, we shall also acknowledge that such an union of qualities is possible, and that those in whom they are united, and those only, should be rulers in the state. What do you mean? Let us suppose that philosophical minds always love knowledge of a sort which shows them the eternal nature not varying from generation and corruption. Agreed. And further, I said, let us agree that they are lovers of all true being. There is no part, whether greater or less, or more or less honourable, which they are willing to renounce, as we said before of the lover and the man of ambition. True. And if they are to be what we were describing, is there not another quality which they should also possess? What quality? Truthfulness. They will never intentionally receive into their mind falsehood, which is their detestation, and they will love the truth. Yes, that may be safely affirmed of them. 
maybe my friend i replied is not the word say rather must be affirmed for he whose nature is amorous of anything cannot help loving all that belongs or is akin to the object of his affections right he said and is there anything more akin to wisdom than truth how can there be can the same nature be a lover of wisdom and a lover of falsehood never the true lover of learning then must from his earliest youth as far as in him lies desire all truth assuredly but then again as we know by experience he whose desires are strong in one direction will have them weaker in others they will be like a stream which has been drawn off into another channel true he whose desires are drawn towards knowledge in every form will be absorbed in the pleasures of the soul and will hardly feel bodily pleasure i mean if he be a true philosopher and not a sham one for that is most certain such an one is sure to be temperate and the reverse of covetous for the motives which make another man desirous of having and spending have no place in his character very true another criterion of the philosophical nature has also to be considered and what is that there should be no secret corner of illiberality nothing can be more antagonistic than meanness to a soul which is ever longing after the hold of things both divine and human most true he replied then how can he who has magnificence of mind and is the spectator of all time and all existence think much of human life he cannot or can such an one account death fearful no indeed then the cowardly and mean nature has no part in true philosophy certainly not or again can he who is harmoniously constituted who is not covetous or mean or a boaster or a coward can he i say ever be unjust or hard in his dealings impossible then you will soon observe whether a man is just and gentle or rude and unsociable these are the signs which distinguish even in youth the philosophical nature from the unphilosophical true there is another point which should be remarked what point whether he has or has not a pleasure in learning for no one will love that which gives him pain and in which after much toil he makes little progress certainly not and again if he is forgetful and retains nothing of what he learns will he not be an empty vessel that is certain laboring in vain he must end in hating himself and his fruitless occupation yes then a soul which forgets cannot be ranked among genuine philosophic natures we must insist that the philosopher should have a good memory certainly and once more the inharmonious and unseemly nature can only tend to disproportion undoubtedly and do you consider truth to be akin to proportion or to disproportion to proportion then besides other qualities we must try to find a naturally well-proportioned and gracious mind which will move spontaneously towards the true being of everything certainly well and do not all these qualities which we have been enumerating go together and are they not in a manner necessary to a soul which is to have a full and perfect participation of being they are absolutely necessary he replied 
and must not that be a blameless study which he can only pursue who has the gift of a good memory and is quick to learn noble gracious the friend of truth justice courage temperance who are his kindred the god of jealousy himself he said can find no fault with such a study and to men like him i said when perfected by years and education and to these only you will entrust the state here adamantus interposed and said to these statements socrates no one can offer a reply but when you talk in this way a strange feeling passes over the minds of your hearers they fancy that they are led astray a little at each step in the argument owing to their own want of skill in asking and answering questions these littles accumulate and at the end of the discussion they are found to have sustained a mighty overthrow and all their former notions appear to be turned upside down and as unskilful players of draughts are at last shut up by their more skilful adversaries and have no peace to move so they too find themselves shut up at last for they have nothing to say in this new game of which words are the counters and yet all the time they are in the right the observation is suggested to me by what is now occurring for any one of us might say that although in words he is not able to meet you at each step of the argument he sees as a fact that the votaries of philosophy when they carry on the study not only in youth as a part of education but as the pursuit of their maturer years must of them become strange monsters not to say utter rogues and that those who may be considered the best of them are made useless to the world by the very study which you extol well and do you think that those who say so are wrong i cannot tell he replied but i should like to know what is your opinion hear my answer i am of opinion that they are quite right then how can you be justified in saying that cities will not cease from evil until philosophers rule in them when philosophers are acknowledged by us to be of no use to them you ask a question i said to which a reply can only be given in a parable yes socrates and that is the way of speaking to which you are not at all accustomed i suppose i perceive i said that you are vastly amused at having plunged me into such a hopeless discussion but now hear the parable and then you will be still more amused at the meagreness of my imagination for the manner in which the best men are treated in their own states is so grievous that no single thing on earth is comparable to it and therefore if i am to plead their cause i must have recourse to fiction and put together a figure made up of many things like the fabulous unions of goats and stags which are found in pictures imagine that a fleet or a ship in which there is a captain who is taller and stronger than any of the crew but he is a little deaf and has a similar infirmity in sight and his knowledge of navigation is not much better the sailors are quarrelling with one another about the steering every one is of opinion that he has a right to steer though he has never learned the art of navigation and cannot tell who taught him or when he learned and will further assert that it cannot be taught and they are ready to cut in pieces any one who says the contrary they throng about the captain begging and praying him to commit the helm to them and if at any time they do not prevail 
but others are preferred to them, they kill the others or throw them overboard, and having first chained up the noble captain's senses with drink or some narcotic drug, they mutiny and take possession of the ship and make free with the stores. Thus eating and drinking they proceed on their voyage in such a manner as might be expected of them. Him who is their partisan and cleverly aids them in their plot for getting the ship out of the captain's hands into their own, whether by force or persuasion, they compliment with the name of sailor, pilot, able seaman, and abuse the other sort of man, whom they call a good-for-nothing. But that the true pilot must pay attention to the year and seasons and sky and stars and winds and whatever else belongs to his art, if he intends to be really qualified for the command of a ship, and that he must and will be the steerer, whether other people like or not, the possibility of this union of authority with the steerer's art has never seriously entered into their thoughts or been made part of their calling. Now, in vessels which are in the state of mutiny, and by sailors who are mutineers, how will the true pilot be regarded? Will he not be called by them a praetor, a star-gazer, a good-for-nothing? Of course, said Ademantis. Then you will hardly need, I said, to hear the interpretation of the figure, which describes the true philosopher in his relation to the state, for you understand already. Certainly. Then suppose you now take this parable to the gentleman who is surprised at finding that philosophers have no honour in their cities. Explain it to him, and try to convince him that their having honour would be far more extraordinary. I will. Say to him that, in deeming the best votaries of philosophy to be useless to the rest of the world, he is right. But also tell them to attribute their uselessness to the fault of those who will not use them, and not to themselves. The pilot should not humbly beg the sailors to be commanded by him. That is not the order of nature. Neither are the wise to go to the doors of the rich. The ingenious author of this saying told a lie. But the truth is that when a man is ill, whether he be rich or poor, to the physician he must go, and he who wants to be governed, to him who is able to govern. The ruler who is good for anything ought not to beg his subjects to be ruled by him, although the present governors of mankind are of a different stamp. They may be justly compared to the mutinous sailors, and the true helmsmen to those who are called by them good-for-nothings and star-gazers. Precisely so, he said. For these reasons, and among men like these, philosophy, the noblest pursuit of all, is not likely to be much esteemed by those of the opposite faction, not that the greatest and most lasting injury is done to her by her opponents, but by her own professing followers, the same of whom you suppose the accuser to say that the greater number of them are errant rogues, and the best are useless, in which opinion I agreed. Yes. And the reason why the good are useless has now been explained? True. Then shall we proceed to show that the corruption of the majority is also unavoidable, and that this is not to be laid to the charge of philosophy any more than the other? By all means. And let us ask and answer in turn, first going back to the description of the gentle and noble nature. Truth, as you will remember, was his leader, whom we followed always and in all things, 
Failing in this, he was an impostor, and had no part or lot in true philosophy. Yes, that was said. Well, and is not this one quality, to mention no others, greatly at variance with present notions of him? Certainly, he said. And have we not a right to say in his defence that the true lover of knowledge is always striving after being? That is his nature. He will not rest in the multiplicity of individuals which is in appearance only, but will go on. The keen edge will not be blunted, nor the force of his desire abate until he have attained the knowledge of the true nature of every essence by a sympathetic and kindred power in the soul, and by that power drawing near and mingling and becoming incorporate with very being, having begotten mind and truth, he will have knowledge, and will live and grow truly, and then, and not till then, will he cease from his travail. Nothing, he said, can be more just than such a description of him. And will the love of a lie be any part of a philosopher's nature? Will he not utterly hate a lie? He will. And when truth is the captain, we cannot suspect any evil of the band which he leads? Impossible. Justice and health of mind will be of the company, and temperance will follow after? True, he replied. Neither is there any reason why I should again set in array the philosopher's virtues, as you will doubtless remember that courage, magnificence, apprehension, memory were his natural gifts. And you objected that, although no one can deny what I then said, still, if you leave words and look at facts, the persons who are thus described are some of them manifestly useless, and the greater number utterly depraved. We were then led to inquire into the grounds of these accusations, and have now arrived at the point of asking why are the majority bad, which question of necessity brought us back to the examination and definition of the true philosopher. Exactly. And we have next to consider the corruptions of the philosophic nature, why so many are spoiled, and so few escape spoiling, I am speaking of those who were said to be useless, but not wicked, and when we have done with them, we will speak of the imitators of philosophy, what manner of men are they who aspire after a profession which is above them, and of which they are unworthy, and then, by their manifold inconsistencies, bring upon philosophy, and upon all philosophers, that universal reprobation of which we speak. What are these corruptions? he said. I will see if I can explain them to you. Every one will admit that a nature having in perfection all the qualities which we require in a philosopher is a rare plant which is seldom seen among men. Rare indeed. And what numberless and powerful causes tend to destroy these rare natures? What causes? In the first place there are their own virtues, their courage, temperance, and the rest of them, every one of which praiseworthy qualities, and this is a most singular circumstance, destroys and distracts from philosophy the soul which is the possessor of them. That is very singular, he replied. Then there are all the ordinary goods of life, beauty, wealth, strength, rank, and great connections in the state, you understand the sort of thing. These also have a corrupting and distracting effect. 
I understand, but I should like to know more precisely what you mean about them. Grasp the truth as a whole, I said, and in the right way. You will then have no difficulty in apprehending the preceding remarks, and they will no longer appear strange to you. And how am I to do so? he asked. Why, I said, we know that all germs or seeds, whether vegetable or animal, when they fail to meet with proper nutriment or climate or soul, in proportion to their vigor, are all the more sensitive to the want of a suitable environment, for evil is a greater enemy to what is good than to what is not. Very true. There is reason in supposing that the finest natures, when under alien conditions, receive more injury than the inferior, because the contrast is greater. Certainly. And may we not say, Adamantus, that the most gifted minds, when they are ill-educated, become pre-eminently bad? Do not great crimes and the spirit of pure evil spring out of a fullness of nature ruined by education, rather than from any inferiority, whereas weak natures are scarcely capable of any very great good or very great evil? There I think you are right. And our philosopher follows the same analogy. He is like a plant which, having proper nurture, must necessarily grow and mature into all virtue but if sown and planted in an alien soil, becomes the most noxious of all weeds, unless he be preserved by some divine power. Do you really think, as people so often say, that our youth are corrupted by sophists, or that private teachers of the art corrupt them in any degree worth speaking of? Are not the public who say these things the greatest of all sophists? And do they not educate to perfection young and old, men and women alike, and fashion them after their own hearts? When is this accomplished? he said. When they meet together, and the world sits down at an assembly, or in a court of law, or a theatre, or a camp, or in any other popular resort, and there is a great uproar, and they praise some things which are being said or done, and blame other things, equally exaggerating both, shouting and clapping their hands, and the echo of the rocks and the place in which they are assembled redoubles the sound of the praise or blame. At such a time will not a young man's heart, as they say, leap within him? Will any private training enable him to stand firm against the overwhelming flood of popular opinion, or will he be carried away by the stream? Will he not have the notions of good and evil which the public in general have? He will do as they do, and as they are. Such will he be. Yes, Socrates, necessity will compel him. And yet, I said, there is a still greater necessity which has not been mentioned. What is that? The gentle force of attainder, or confiscation, or death, which, as you are aware, these new sophists and educators, who are the public, apply when their words are powerless. Indeed they do, and in right good earnest. Now, what opinion of any other sophist, or any private person, can be expected to overcome in such an unequal contest? None, he replied. No, indeed, I said, even to make the attempt is a great piece of folly. There neither is, nor has been, nor is ever likely to be, any different type of character which has had no other training in virtue but that which is supplied by public opinion. 
I speak, my friend, of human virtue only. What is more than human, as the proverb says, is not included, for I would not have you ignorant that, in the present evil state of governments, whatever is saved and comes to good is saved by the power of God, as we may truly say. I quite assent, he replied. Then let me crave your assent also to a further observation. What are you going to say? Why, that all those mercenary individuals, whom the many call sophists, and whom they deem to be their adversaries, do, in fact, teach nothing but the opinion of the many, that is to say, the opinions of their assemblies, and this is their wisdom. I might compare them to a man who should study the tempers and desires of a mighty strong beast who is fed by him. He would learn how to approach and handle him, also at what times and from what causes he is dangerous, or the reverse, and what is the meaning of his several cries, and by what sounds, when another utters them, he is soothed or infuriated. And you may suppose further, that when, by continually attending upon him, he has become perfect in all this, he calls his knowledge wisdom, and makes of it a system or art, which he proceeds to teach, although he has no real notion of what he means by the principles or passions of which he is speaking, but calls this honourable and that dishonourable, or good or evil, or just or unjust, all in accordance with the tastes and tempers of the great brute, good he pronounces to be that in which the beast delights and evil to be that which he dislikes and he can give no other account of them except that the just and noble are the necessary having never himself seen and having no power of explaining to others the nature of either or the difference between them which is immense by heaven would not such an one be a rare educator indeed he would and in what way does he who thinks that wisdom is the discernment of the tempers and tastes of the motley multitude, whether in painting or music, or finally in politics, differ from him who I have been describing? For when a man consorts with the many, and exhibits to them his poem or other work of art, or the service which he has done the state, making them his judges when he is not obliged the so-called necessity of Diomede will oblige him to produce whatever they praise. And yet the reasons are utterly ludicrous which they give in confirmation of their own notions about the honourable and good. Did you ever hear any of them which were not? No, nor am I likely to hear. You recognise the truth of what I have been saying? Let me ask you to consider further whether the world will ever be induced to believe in the existence of absolute beauty, rather than of the many beautiful, or of the absolute in each kind, rather than the many in each kind. Certainly not. Then the world cannot possibly be a philosopher. Impossible. And therefore philosophers must inevitably fall under the censure of the world. They must and of individuals who consort with the mob and seek to please them. That is evident. Then do you see any way in which the philosopher can be preserved in his calling to the end, and remember what we were saying of him, that he was to have quickness and memory and courage and magnificence? These were admitted by us to be the true philosopher's gifts. Yes. 
will not such an one from his early childhood be in all things first among all especially if his bodily endowments are like his mental ones certainly he said and his friends and fellow-citizens will want to use him as he gets older for their own purposes no question falling at his feet they will make requests to him and do him honour and flatter him because they want to get into their hands now the power which he will one day possess that often happens he said and what will a man such as he is be likely to do under such circumstances especially if he be a citizen of a great city rich and noble and a tall proper youth will he not be full of boundless aspiration fancy himself able to manage the affairs of hellenes and of barbarians and having got such notions into his head will he not dilate and elevate himself in the fullness of vain pomp and senseless pride to be sure he will now when he is in this state of mind if some one gently comes to him and tells him that he is a fool and must get understanding which can only be got by slaving for it do you think that under such adverse circumstances he will be easily induced to listen far otherwise and even if there be some one who through inherent goodness or natural reasonableness has had his eyes opened a little and is humbled and taken captive by philosophy how will his friends behave when they think that they are likely to lose the advantage which they are hoping to reap from his companionship will they not do and say anything to prevent him from yielding to his better nature and to render his teacher powerless using to this end private intrigues as well as public prosecutions there can be no doubt of it and how can one who is this circumstanced ever become a philosopher impossible then were we not right in saying that even the very qualities which make a man a philosopher may if he be ill-educated divert him from philosophy no less than riches and their accompaniments and the other so-called goods of life we were quite right thus my excellent friend is brought about all that ruin and failure which i have been describing of the natures best adapted to the best of all pursuits they are natures which we maintain to be rare at any time this being the class out of which come the men who are the authors of the greatest evil to states and individuals and also of the greatest good when the tide carries them in that direction but a small man never was the doer of any great thing either to individuals or to states that is most true he said and so philosophy is left desolate with her marriage right incomplete for her own have fallen away and forsaken her and while they are leading a false and unbecoming life other unworthy persons seeing that she has no kinsmen to be her protectors enter in and dishonour her and fasten upon her the reproaches which as you say her reprovers utter who affirm of her votaries that some are good for nothing and that the greater number deserve the severest punishment that is certainly what people say yes and what else would you expect i said when you think of the puny creatures who seeing this land open to them a land well stocked with fair names and showy titles like prisoners running out of prison into a sanctuary take a leap out of their trades into philosophy those who doing so being probably the cleverest hands at their own miserable crafts 
for although philosophy be in this evil case still there remains a dignity about her which is not to be found in the arts and many are thus attracted by her whose natures are imperfect and whose souls are maimed and disfigured by their meannesses as their bodies are by their trades and crafts is not this unavoidable yes are they not exactly like a bald little tinker who has just got out of durance and come into a fortune he takes a bath and puts on a new coat and is decked out as a bridegroom going to marry his master's daughter who is left poor and desolate a most exact parallel what will be the issue of such marriages will they not be vile and bastard there can be no question of it and when persons who are unworthy of education approach philosophy and make an alliance with her who is in a rank above them what sort of ideas and opinions are likely to be generated will they not be sophisms captivating to the ear having nothing in them genuine or worthy of or akin to true wisdom no doubt he said then Arimandus, i said the worthy disciples of philosophy will be but a small remnant perchance some noble and well-educated person detained by exile in her service who in the absence of corrupting influences remains devoted to her or some lofty soul born in a mean city the politics of which he condemns and neglects and there may be a gifted few who leave the arts which they justly despise and come to her or peradventure there are some who are restrained by our friend theages bridle for everything in the life of theages conspired to divert him from philosophy but ill health kept him away from politics my own case of the internal sign is hardly worth mentioning for rarely if ever has such a monitor been given to any other man those who belong to this small class have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession philosophy is and have also seen enough of the madness of the multitude and they know that no politician is honest nor is there any champion of justice at whose side they may fight and be saved such an one may be compared to a man who has fallen among wild beasts he will not join in the wickedness of his fellows but neither is he able singly to resist all their fierce natures and therefore seeing that he would be of no use to the state or to his friends and reflecting that he would have to throw away his life without doing any good either to himself or others he holds his peace and goes his own way he is like one who in the storm of dust and sleet which the driving wind hurries along retires under the shelter of a wall and seeing the rest of mankind full of wickedness he is content if only he can live his own life and be pure from evil or unrighteousness and depart in peace and good will with bright hopes yes he said and he will have done a great work before he departs a great work yes but not the greatest unless he find a state suitable to him for in a state which is suitable to him he will have a larger growth and be the saviour of his country as well as of himself the causes why philosophy is in such an evil name have now been sufficiently explained the injustice of the charges against her has been shown is there anything more which you wish to say nothing more on that subject he replied but i should like to know which of the governments now existing is in your opinion the one adapted to her not any of them i said 
and that is precisely the accusation which I bring against them. Not one of them is worthy of the philosophic nature, and hence that nature is warped and estranged, as the exotic seed which is sown in a foreign land becomes denaturalized and is wont to be overpowered and to lose itself in the new soil, even so this growth of philosophy, instead of persisting, degenerates and receives another character. But if philosophy ever finds in the state that perfection which she herself is, then will be seen that she is in truth divine, and that all other things, whether natures of men or institutions, are but human. And now I know that you are going to ask what that state is. No, he said, there you are wrong, for I was going to ask another question, whether it is the state of which we are the founders and inventors, or some other. Yes, I replied, ours in most respects, but you may remember my saying before, that some living authority would always be required in the state having the same idea of the constitution which guided you, when as a legislator you were laying down the laws. That was said, he replied. Yes, but not in a satisfactory manner. You frightened us by interposing objections, which certainly showed that the discussion would be long and difficult, and what still remains is the reverse of easy. What is there remaining? The question how the study of philosophy may be so ordered as not to be the ruin of the state. All great attempts are attended with risk. Hard is the good, as men say. Still, he said, let the point be cleared up, and the inquiry will then be complete. End of part one.